Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Um, thank you ever so much, by the way, for agreeing to talk to me for the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. It's good to have you mm-hmm. with me. So, first of yeah, all... Yeah, thanks for the invitation. You're yeah. welcome. First of all, could you describe the variety of pain... Um, modulating therapies that are available for equids? Um, yeah, sure. I think uh, we could uh, look at it from the perspective that we can have a variety of different types of analgesics available that, that we can use uh, to treat horses. Uh, apart from the different types of analgesics, which we come back to uh, later on, I think, it's also important to realize that we have uh, physiotherapy, like controlled movements, um, we have the uh, option for cryotherapy, we have compression socks and suits sometimes even as well, we have anti-swelling therapy, and I think also these types of treatments uh, should also be uh, uh, noted when we're thinking about analgesic protocols. Uh, if we think about uh, the analgesic drugs themselves, um, well, we have uh, the concept of multimodal analgesia, which we will talk later uh, later about. But uh, the basis, the basic uh, step in any analgesic protocol in horses, uh, very often is uh, the use of non-steroidals. Uh, so that's actually where most of all pain protocols uh, start with and sometimes that is enough to uh, to have a proper effect in the patient and sometimes it isn't and that's probably also what we're going to be discussing about uh, in this uh, conversation as well. Yeah brilliant and it's interesting that you raise the different forms of therapies such as cryotherapy and anti-swelling therapies as other ways of modulating pain and discomfort in the horse so having a quite a broad approach to all forms of pain and, and analgesia, that's an interesting perspective. So how, mm-hmm. how well do you think that we, um, as clinicians, understand equine pain? Um, well, I, I think that's something that, uh, that's, a, that's a field of research that has had quite some input in the last decade. If we look at the different studies that uh, have been done and that are being done to measure, to objectively quantify the amount of pain in horses, we can see quite a vast amount of studies. uh, And the the most recent studies focus mainly on the use of composite pain scales and the use of uh, facial expression-based pain scales, uh, really. Mm -hmm. And I think both types of pain scales uh, are very suitable uh, to objectively quantify the amount of pain. Um, what we see in studies now is that uh, pain scales very often uh, are validated for different types of pain. Like we have mm-hmm. pain scales that are um, looking at acute orthopedic pain. We have pain scales that are looking at acute visceral pain, like colic pain, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a very good step ahead in, in research where we are realizing that species have different ways of showing their pain but different types of pain also lead to different signs or symptoms and i think the the use of of of, um, well-validated pain skills is helping us dramatically in uh, the equine practice as well yeah brilliant so with um, the pain scales such as the facial expression pain scales does that mean that they are kind of generalizable to all sorts of different types of pain because presumably colic pain is quite a different experience for horses compared to um, a foot abscess pain for example mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree with that completely um, uh, and especially when using composite pain skills you see that different types of behavior for instance are expressed in different ways or at, def- in, at, at different levels uh, when regarding different types of pain but if we look at facial expression uh, we see quite some similarities between the different types of pain and how horses express their pain uh, when looking at their faces and I think uh, like for instance the horse grimace scale that has been published we have uh, had the equine pain face we have uh, the facial expression uh, 
pain phase that we also have uh, at Utrecht University. Um, and if we look at all these different research groups and, and the, the studies that have been done and that are conducted at the moment, we are learning more and more about different types of pain. And I think that will uh, bring us uh, uh, one step further in uh, objectively assessing it in patients as well, I think. Yeah, excellent. So it's, I mean, with these composite pain scales, I suppose they're, they're really good indicators to try and um, alert the clinician or even owners if we're able to um, also communicate that um, to people caring for horses. Um, but does do they translate to a sort of um, amount or sorts of analgesia that they will need? Is it, is it kind of a, a scale that you can translate into, well, if they're at this range, then they need this sort of analgesia? Um, I, I think ultimately it would be very good if that would be possible in that way. Uh, I think we're not that far yet at the moment, um, but what we can see, and also, for instance, the um, uh, the case report that uh, is related actually to the clinical commentary that I, I, I wrote about uh, this uh, uh, subject uh, concerns a horse with uh, a suspected extremity compartment syndrome, so it's a very painful patient, um, and uh, that's also what the, the the authors also discuss. If you would be using, uh, for instance, a composite pain scale in a case like this, you could really see the effect of the different steps of in your treatment plan um, in the numbers of your pain scores. Uh, and so it brings some uh, objectivity into assessments. And um, at the moment, we're not that far yet that, that you can say, okay, above a pain score of, let's say, 5 or 10 or whatever, um, the patient needs more than only non-steroidals or whatever. Uh, but I think at some stage, we, we might come to that level uh, as well, where, where, where we can actually guide our uh, analgesic uh, protocols based on, on these numbers, really. Brilliant. Okay, so the the article talks about um, a World Health Organization extended pain ladder um, as as a tool for for measuring um, pain. Could you describe this to us, and also whether this is something that can be adopted into practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the, the WHO uh, pain ladder that is uh, 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 designed actually for, for pain in humans, and it, it was originally determined for cancer pain in humans, for instance. Um, and the idea about this pain ladder is actually um, going from the bottom. Um, patients are always uh, treated uh, in first instance with um, uh, uh, an analgesic drug from class one, which is uh, uh, relating to non-opioids that can be uh, administered orally or adjuvants. Um, and for humans and also for horses, this means that uh, this, this class one drugs are uh, non-steroidals, paracetamol is very important in humans as well. And the idea about the, 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 the pain ladder is if uh, this first step of the ladder is not sufficient uh, uh, to to uh, to, op, uh, to to obtain um, uh, enough analgesia in the patient. You can walk up the ladder and go to the next step and combine the first step with the second or with the third step as well. And in that way, weak opioids and stronger opioids can also be included stepwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this concept, this idea of uh, going upwards to the up the ladder um, uh, to tailor actually the the analgesic effect to the patients um, can also be used in horses as well. And uh, therefore, we uh, modulated this pain ladder a little bit, also to make it uh, applicable to horses as well. And the concept is uh, is is quite universal in that way. Um, and I think it can also help the equine veterinarian uh, to tailor the effect of analgesic treatment uh, to the individual patient. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, So the article is very much focused on the use of multimodal analgesia. Can you tell us about what this is? 
Um, yeah, well, multimodal analgesia is uh, the concept that combining different analgesic techniques and different analgesic drugs uh, that all act by means of different uh, mechanisms and at different levels of the pain system in the patient, uh, we can influence both peripheral and central nervous system uh, at the different levels of the nociceptive pathways. Um, and, and, and by combining uh, these different types of analgesics and these different uh, mechanisms as well, uh, it, it will result in, in additive or even synergistic effects. Um, so it will amplify the analgesic effects that are obtained. And um, another benefit of this strategy is that uh, dosages, for instance, can be reduced um, also in order to, to decrease uh, the number of uh, adverse side effects of uh, the different individual drugs that are uh, used in the protocol. Um, this concept has been uh, uh, developed actually to, 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 to treat uh, pain in humans again, uh, but the concept is based on how uh, the pain system functions in invertebrate animals like humans and horses are. So there are a lot of similarities about anatomy, physiology uh, of the central and the peripheral nervous system. So I think this concept of multimodal analgesia and combining different uh, types of drugs and different techniques is uh, very well applicable to, to all vertebrate animals, actually. Okay, so this is something that in some instances, I suppose, then um, multimodal analgies, multimodal therapeutics may um, mm -hmm. may in some situations not be regarded as um, well maybe have some question marks over their um, clinical efficacy or whether you're just throwing a lot of medication their way um, but presumably this is more of a structured um, approach and what is it that's novel about multimodal analgesia in equine practice? Mm -hmm. Um, well, maybe you could think about uh, if we would uh, take, for instance, uh, a horse with uh, severe laminitis. Um, we have a very painful patient, and we're thinking about how to treat this animal. Of course, we have the farrier, uh, who is very important in, 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 in a situation like this. Um, we have other modalities like cryotherapy, for instance, like physiotherapy in some cases as well. But if we consider the options for analgesic treatment itself, so for the pharmaca, for the drugs, um, then uh, all practitioners will start with prescribing uh, non-steroidal. Uh, and in some cases, uh, horses with laminitis uh, will be happy if they're administered like phenylbutazone or funixin or meloxicam, for instance. Um, but in very severe cases, um, sometimes uh, the non-steroidal is not sufficient. And, and uh, one option could be, and that was, I think, in, in, in some cases in the past, that has been done as well, sometimes by owners, sometimes by vets, you can increase the dosage of your non-steroidals or you can increase um, the dosing. So you can go from one once daily to twice daily, you can increase the dosage. Um, 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 but um, that will, at some stage, lead to uh, adverse side effects, especially mm -hmm. with high dosages of non-steroidals um, that can lead to all kinds of uh, gastrointestinal side effects like ulceration, like colitis maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so um, instead of going that way, uh, the idea of multimodal analgesia is to go up the ladder and uh, stick to your non-steroidal as well, uh, but instead of looking for higher dosages, go to combinations with, for instance, weak opioids like uh, like tramadol with adjuvants like gabapentin, like combining it with more potent opioids like methadone or morphine, uh, and in that way, uh, searching for combinations of drugs where you can have your individual components to the normal therapeutic dosages and also try to restrict your side effects, but at the same time uh, combining the different uh, modalities and the different 
mechanisms also the different types of receptors that are that are involved in these uh, the, these very painful patients mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to to obtain better results actually okay thanks so what evidence is currently available or perhaps is required for the use of multimodal analgesia in equine practice Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's that's an interesting question. Um, there, there are in, in 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 equine practice there are some smaller studies. There are there are some larger studies as well. Um, if we think about uh, the study of uh, of Taylor et al. Uh, that was published in EVJ uh, in 2016, that was actually quite an interesting study. Um, it's uh, uh, it, it was actually about the comparison between buprenorphine and butorphanol pre-medication before equine elective general anesthesia and surgery. Um, and so it was actually uh, designed to compare these two different opioids. Um, but together at the same time, th these were clinical cases. It was, it was quite a large randomized blinded clinical trial, which is interesting uh, to, uh, to, 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 lack, to look at too. Mm -hmm. um, these horses were also administered non-steroidals preoperatively. Um, so actually it was also uh, looking at a, a very basic form of multimodal analgesia, actually the combination of a non-steroidal and an opioid. And in this study, the effectiveness of buprenorphine compared to butorphanol uh, after surgery, so in the acute post-operative phase, was, was evaluated in this way. And they found some differences, and they, those were also based on different durations of action between these two opioids, uh, but it also evaluates the effect of your combination of a non-steroidal and an opioid as well. Okay. And this is an, this is an aspect of, uh, of, of these protocols that was not... Um, uh, that was that was not that obvious maybe when you look at the title of the study and the mm -hmm. the objectives as well. But it also uh, it, it's also about multimodal analgesic uh, uh, protocols. Um, and and the thing is that uh, we really need larger uh, randomized clinical trials like this one uh, to learn more about uh, multimodal uh, protocols. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, in, in, the, in, in the clinical commentary also described about, uh, again, these laminitis patients as well, um, where we have uh, some studies, and, and those are quite small, where um, the use of, 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 of combined protocols and multimodal strategies are also uh, investigated. And uh, one of the, the strategies that is investigated is a very interesting one. It is actually the combination of tramadol and ketamine. Um, so tramadol is a, is, is a weak opioid. It also has some non-opioid effects. So uh, we should categorize it in either step one or step two of the, of the, of the, the pain ladder if we want to classify it. Um, it's, a, it's a drug that can be administered orally. It can be done by an owner itself. It's not a very, we, we think it's not a very potent analgesic drug, but it can also bring us some synergistic effects. And, and, and in, uh, in, in, in the study that, that, uh, uh, that was described uh, uh, in this uh, uh, by Gwedis et al., um, it's about the combination of tramadol and ketamine CRI. So if we think about ketamine CRI, concentrate infusion, that's a, a drug that is uh, classed from step four, actually. It's parenteral analgesia, and ketamine is known for its uh, analgesic effects also in chronic pain states in humans. Um, uh, we know quite a bit about the analgesic effects in horses as well. In this uh, laminitis study, there's a clear synergistic effect between these two different drugs. Um, well, the disadvantage is that it's a rather small clinical study, um, and I think if we want to learn more about um, um, the efficacy of combinations like this, or even combinations where you can think about combining tramadol and ketamine, for instance, also with a non-steroidal, where you have uh, even more um, um, a more multimodal approach that would be very interesting I think mm. um, and that's also what, what the clinical commentary is about the need for um, for, for, for new and, 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 and large uh, clinical trials I think that will 
bring us a lot more information about what the treatment options would be in cases like this. Yeah, certainly. And that's interesting because it sounds as though it's got great potential to have a real impact on analgesia by augmenting the um, effect of these compounds. But then I suppose, Mm -hmm. as you point out, then in practice, if somebody's, you know, at the stall, at the stable, and wanted to know Mm -hmm. whether they can improve on their analgesia by supplementing or adding another um, drug combination, then having that evidence and peace of mind behind you that it's been tested and that you know how this combination will work and the effect and the impact on analgesia, then that that would be really good for a range of different combinations. Um, So have you got any kind of comments on the future development for for pain modulation in equids? Um, Yeah, so I think uh, if we look at the the, the analgesic drugs that we could uh, use for our for our equine patients. I think we have quite some some compounds that 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 could be very interesting, and 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 we really would like to test them in clinical trials. Eh? Like for instance, as I mentioned, tramadol and and gabapentin as well. Mm-hmm. But even also uh, paracetamol is is a is a drug that we well eh, we we know that uh, we can administer it to horses. Um, we know that uh, if we give it orally, it will lead to plasma levels. We know quite a, quite a bit about the kinetics, um, but we know very little about uh, the analgesic efficacy in horses, mm. uh, because simply because it hasn't been tested. Actually, uh, there is uh, there is a, a scarce uh, uh, case report about it. Um, well, the case reports about the extremity compartment syndrome. That horse was also treated with paracetamol, but this is an individual case, and we have well this multimodal approach in this uh, individual patient, and we don't really know what the individual contribution um, would be in that case. Um, so it would be very interesting to have um, uh, to have drugs like this uh, being tested in clinical trials as well. So I think there are quite a few. Uh, drugs that are already available at the moment, but we don't really know enough about uh, in these types of patients. Uh, I, I think at the same time, pain modulation can also be provided um, with with local regional techniques, and that brings us to step five in the, on the pain ladder as well, where where we have uh, we know about epidural techniques that are also described in this uh, case report very nicely with epidural morphine and epidural methadone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is quite a bit to be discovered about, for instance, the use of uh, wound soaker catheters, which are used mm-hmm. in humans, which are used in, in small animals, uh, for instance, after amputation. Mm-hmm. There's very limited literature yet in horses about these local energy and anesthetic techniques, uh, which provide uh, um, very potent effects by means of uh, local anesthetics being provided by these uh, catheters as well. So I think that's also very interesting to to think about and to uh, to to look forward to. Um, if we go even one step uh, higher on the pain ladder. We go. We come to neurolytic and neurostimulation techniques, and um, have, that brings us to an, a completely other type of pain, like for instance the neuropathic types of pain that we also see in horses. Mm-hmm. Um, we know the studies from uh, Roberts from from um, from uh, from the UK as well um, on uh, trigeminal neuropathy in equine head shaking. Um, so we have these horses which are very painful. Uh, because of this trigeminal neuropathy and uh, the technique that is that has been described uh, by Roberts is about um, well actually uh, modulating this this over sensitized uh, peripheral nerve uh, with uh, pens with peripheral nerve stimulation techniques and um, well the the the, the studies are, are limited at the moment. The number of horses that are included in this study is, is a bit limited, but I think uh, in, the, in the coming decade, we will learn a lot more about uh, treating these types of, uh, of uh, neuropathic pain in horses uh, much better as well, hopefully. Uh, and I think that will also bring, uh, bring our 
our possibilities and options for multimodal multimodal approaches um, more close to uh, to the individual patient as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, in a very important and practical area of equine medicine and, and clinical interventions. Um, do you have mm-hmm. anything else that you'd like to comment on before we wrap up the discussion? Um, yeah, well, I think that um, apart from what we discussed about the need for for uh, for, for clinical trials, uh, which is very obvious, I also would like to thank the authors of the case report that uh, that is uh, being discussed in uh, in in, uh, in this clinical commentary as well, because I think uh, apart from the need for clinical trials, we're also very happy with case reports like the one from uh, Brunicus et al, because it also it also learns us a lot about the individual patient as well, and it's very good and 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 illustrating to read about uh, these extremely painful patients that we see on a daily basis. And I think people can learn a lot from uh, reading and discussing these case reports as well. So I think they also uh, contribute very well uh, to our common knowledge. So I think we we are working on different levels at this. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Van Loon. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's no problem. Thanks. Today we have Dr. Alison Stewart. She's a specialist in equine medicine and boarded in emergency and critical care and is currently at the veterinary school at the University of Queensland. And she's going to talk about um, a case series of Conidiobolus coronatus fungal upper respiratory infections in horses. So, first of all, um, would you be able to tell us a bit about Conidiobolus coronatus fungal respiratory infection and how this can be recognised in practice? Good. Okay, yeah, Conidiobolus infections are probably the most common upper respiratory tract fungal infection that has been reported in sort of the southeast of the United States and also northern areas of Australia. Um, these horses usually present with a often a quite protracted history of a, a nasal discharge, a bloody nasal discharge or serosanguinous nasal discharge. Um, sometimes they're being treated empirically with antimicrobials with no response, obviously. Um, and when endoscopy is performed, of the upper respiratory tract, um, often there's, in the initial stages, they're often a popped cauliflower-like um, protrusions of the mucosa, and this can be anywhere from the nostrils up into usually most commonly around the nasopharynx, but they've also been recorded in the trachea. Um, and in the more chronic cases, cases there can be sort of multiple coalescing um, bleeding ulcerated granulomas um, that are far, far more extensive. Um, they really cause very large granulomas, so they really cause occlusion of um, the nasal passages uh, or stertorous respiration, as we sometimes see with, with other fungal infections. Um, and there's no mold that's evident, which is sometimes seen with aspergillus infections. It's just a, a bleeding ulcerated lesion, which could easily be confused with, say, a squamous cell carcinoma or another okay. type of cancer. Yeah. So the first sign that the owners see is the bloody nasal discharge. How long do you think it it is before those signs start to appear? I, I don't think we know how long... Um, the infection has been going on until first clinical signs are noted. Um, unfortunately, in most of the patients that I had experience with, um, there was quite a long history, you know, of one or two or three months of intermittent nasal, serosanguinous nasal discharge. Um, and you often question why on earth didn't they bring it in to see you several months beforehand. Mm. Um, but we certainly don't know how long it had been going on you know none of these horses are scoped routinely to say well it certainly wasn't there 12 months ago or six months ago um so it can be quite insidious and intermittent nasal discharge that is often not of a great concern to the owner um and until 
you know, things become a little bit more severe and, and then prompts endoscopy or referral for endoscopy. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned that it's one of the most common um, fungal respiratory infections in, in certain geographic areas. Um, has this been something that's been studied at a population level? Um, not specifically at a, at a population level. I, I've tried to collect um, all of the cases that I can find for fungal disease in horses, just uh, putting together book chapters. Um, and it, it seems to be the most common in the southeast of America and certainly the most common that we saw in horses from Florida, Georgia, Alabama, um, Mississippi regions, uh, also Texas A&M would see a few. And here in Queensland, in northeastern Australia, we, we certainly see some as well. So other things that have been diagnosed um, include cryptococcus. Um, there's mm. been a few of those diagnosed in the southeast of the United States. Um, and relatively, I think we would probably have seen probably five times as many canidia bolus as, as, as cryptococcus cases. Okay. Um, but there's also other fungal infections that can pop up more sporadically and until you've got a biopsy uh, and a culture or something quite definitive on on um, cytology or histopathology or PCR, um, then it's, it's uncertain what the final diagnosis is because there's been um, some Pseudodella ricea boidii cases um, mm -hmm. and, you know, over a year or so another weird fungus pops up that someone's able to identify as a cause of um, infection. Okay. But um, I think with, with the Canidia bolus, sometimes you're able to get a positive culture yeah. Um, sometimes you're able to see the organism on cytology or histopathology. Um, but a lot of the time there's a presumptive diagnosis. If, if you're used to, if your histopathology staff or cytology staff are used to seeing it in the region because there's characteristically um, a large number of eosinophils around these lesions and, and something that they call splendor hopelically phenomenon i'm not sure if i'm saying that correctly but it's basically an amorphous eosinophilic um, hyaline type um, accumulation that's around the organisms and this is quite characteristic for this particular organism though it can be seen with many other different infections and so occasionally you know there's a presumptive diagnosis and then response to treatment because this this cytology looks identical to cases that the organism has been identified in. Okay, so can you see this um, uh, amorphous eosinophilic um, type accumulation in the cytology um, samples as well as the histology? Yes, okay. yes. Quite frequently you'll see large numbers of eosinophils as well as this um, eosinophilic or red highline material and they will actually see that within um, cytology as well as histopathology and it's it's actually a host derived material in response to the infection um, it can be seen in response to fungal infections helminths or even bacterial colonies but um, certainly in the cases that we saw um, it was very highly correlated with canidia virus infections mm. okay so do we have any idea about what causes this infection? Um, it's a it's a saprophytic fungus. It's it's living out in the environment in warm, humid leaf litter. Um, why it affects horses' noses, uh, we don't really know, but I presume um, it's inhalation and whether there was any kind of wound or irritation that allowed the infection to take hold or whether the organism was just simply able to penetrate the mucosa and commence an infection. All of the cases that we saw did not have any underlying um, um, immune deficit. Um, They're all immunocompetent animals. Um, and so we didn't have any particular predisposing factors. There's no history of trauma, but you wonder whether there had been 
any trauma or whether it's just a straight inhalation of the organism, an overwhelming number of, of organisms that were able to um, infect the mucosa. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of other differentials that you may suspect with these kind of clinical signs. Um, are you able to kind of put into perspective for clinicians, <clears throat> excuse me, for clinicians in this area, like what kind of priority you'd put this? Is this, is this like a usual suspect that should be high up on the agenda? Mm. Yes, yeah, certainly in the southeast of America, um, it would be certainly the number one cause of a fungal infection um, and a, a fairly frequent cause of a bloody nasal discharge. Certainly you'd be thinking of ethmoid hematoma um, or squamous cell carcinoma, um, but this was certainly the most common fungal infection with cryptococcus being number two and pseudodelavitia boidii being number three and then there's a spattering of single case reports of other organisms. Mm. Okay. So is it very easy to treat? What are the treatment options available? Yes, um, it, it has turned out to be quite easy to treat um, because of the availability of fluconazole. So fluconazole at 14 mg per kg is a loading dose and then 5 milligrams per kilo once a day. Um, usually we've treated them for about two to four weeks after endoscopic resolution or resolution of clinical signs and and endoscopic resolution. Um, fluconazole is now readily available and has significantly come down in price, um, so it's made it quite feasible to be able to treat horses, adult horses, with this drug. Um, it can be given as, um, it's a very stable compound, so you can either buy the human tablets or you can have it compounded or buy the chemical grade formulation, you know, if that's legal in your area. Um, but it is a very stable compound, unlike some of the other um, antifungal drugs such as itraconazole, which I certainly wouldn't be using any compounded formulations because it's not stable in solution and they're a lot more expensive. So we are lucky that this organism does respond to fluconazole and that's um, usually affordable for horse owners. And all the cases that we've that I've been able to um, be involved with have been successfully treated. Um, there was one case in our hospital that was uh, diagnosed in the early days by a surgeon and only treated for two weeks. Um, it did resolve, but it did reoccur. So we've always treated them for a lot longer, two, three, four months, um, and we haven't had any recurrences. Okay. So... There are a, a kind of smattering of case reports, I think. Um, I may be wrong in saying this, but um, certainly from the references that you highlight in this case commentary, um, that have reported on infections with Conidia bolus fungi. Um, I, I guess I wonder whether sometimes they are written up because they may be particularly challenging cases or... Um, maybe it's a novel experience for the for that particular hospital. I'm not sure, but um, there was um, an article that you referred to by Wallace, um, where there was a range of different treatments used to try and combat the infection. I mean, are there are there cases where it's it's not quite so straightforward to to treat? Um, I think if you look at the historical treatment of this condition before the um, availability of fluconazole and the, the knowledge that or the pharmacokinetic um, studies that allowed us to approach uh, to instigate an appropriate dose that achieved therapeutic concentrations um, other drugs had been used um, so intralesional treatments had been used okay. with um, uh, sorry, amphotericin B, and also long-term treatment with systemic iodides. Um, this is sort of an interesting area because systemic iodides um, have resulted in, in clinical resolution. There was one case of um, tracheal conidiobolus that was treated for an entire year 
on and off with iodides and did get clinical resolution. Um, and the iodide isn't actually an antifungal agent. It really has no effect on the fungus itself, but it helps to sort of break down the granulation tissue. It's been commonly used over the years in treating um, cattle with uh, lumpy jaw. Um, but I think we've had success treating the cases just with fluconazole alone and I don't know whether it's really gained a great deal by adding that on as an adjunctive therapy. Um, some people have continued to use systemic iodide as well as an antifungal agent but um, honestly I don't think it really adds a great deal and there are some side effects as well um, such as excessive lacrimation or nasal discharge um, and it certainly can cause um, thyroid goiters or hypothyroidism in fetuses so it is contraindicated in pregnant animals and so we've treated a number of pregnant animals with fluconazole um, and not used any iodine and I don't think we see any great benefit of adding in the iodine. So as far as you know what cases people publish um, you know as soon as it's in a new site or it's in the trachea or it's it's called a massive erosion through um, the nasal mucosa, then it becomes a slightly different variation and, and people have often got some small case publications. But um, I think it would be lovely to do a big retrospective study and gather up all the cases from um, the region because I know there are some practices that treat them surgically, um, just resect the lesions with the laser um, and without using any um, any antifungal therapy, and you know, I've heard anecdotally that that's been successful as well. Okay, interesting. So I suppose um, that could be an area for further generation of evidence for the different treatment modalities. I suppose because um, um, oh, it'd be great. It would be great to do a retrospective study or even a prospective study and. And, of course, we really don't know how long we need to treat these horses. Um, you know, maybe three weeks is enough in some situations. I think it depends on how um, extensive the lesions are, how thick the granulation tissue around the lesion is, um, and, you know, and the, obviously the individual animal. But maybe we're over-treating them, treating them for, you know, two to four weeks after resolution of the clinical signs, um, Sometimes when you scope them, there is a little bit of scarring, so it's a little bit difficult to try and tell whether the lesion has completely cleared. And given the option of redoing cytology and histopathology and um, cultures versus another month of treatment, a lot of the times the owners will elect just to, just to continue off for another couple of weeks of treatment because it actually turns out to be a bit cheaper than further diagnostics to you know, which may or may not pick up if there's a very small number of residual organisms. Mm. Okay. So um, I noticed that you've also worked on cryptococcosis, um, and this was also referenced in this article, um, just talking about the differential diagnosis here. Um, how do cryptococcal infections kind of mimic this, how closely similar are they clinically or are they not, not at all? Um, I've seen fewer of the cryptococcus cases. Um, they're certainly less common. They tend to form larger granulomatous lesions. Um, the ones that I have seen haven't been ulcerated and bleeding, so they actually look quite different um, endoscopically. Mm. But the cryptococcus lesions tend to be a lot more extensive, um, form larger granulomas that can then block airways or cause facial bone deformation. Um, and so the cryptococcus cases I've seen have presented on and off with a bloody nasal discharge, but also respiratory stirda, um, facial deformation, um, etc. And then once you radiograph them or do a CT scan, you can see that the lesions are a lot more extensive and not really just confined to the mucosa and submucosa. Uh, I've only known one canidia bolus infection that eroded right through um, the nasal passage and was a large granulomatous lesion on the face of a horse um, over the, the hair. And that case was actually from Ohio. 
do a little bit further north than it's usually seen. So the other thing is cytologically, the cryptococcus is very easy to identify on um, on cytology. And again, the, the, the lesions, the, the organisms are a lot more frequent, so it's very easy to actually see the cryptococcal lesions okay. versus um, the canidia bolus. Actual organisms can be quite difficult to find. Um, and as I said, sometimes it's just a presumptive diagnosis with all of the eosinophilic infiltrate, which isn't, is not typical of the cryptococcus lesions. Yeah. Okay. So for the listeners that are listening from um, Europe and the UK, um, are you able to um, comment on the situation for Conidia bolus fungal infection there or any other um, important respiratory fungal infections for horses in those regions? Yeah, well, I certainly haven't worked in Europe, but a couple of times when I've visited and asked to be to look at cases, um, I've seen and certainly heard more cases of aspergillus infections, whether this be guttural pouch infections or secondary to sinus surgery, um, and some of them being just spontaneous aspergillus infections. So aspergillus tends to be a lot more superficial and more of a mouldy bread type lesion rather than a thick granulomatous lesion um, and so the, the therapies can be quite different a lot of the times the aspergillus will actually respond to um, topical application of antifungal medications or even inhalation um, of, of antifungal medications and even enylconazole which is um, in a solution and it's used to treat ringworm as a shampoo. It's available in Australia and it's available in Europe um, for a, a ringworm shampoo. It's not available in the US, but there's been several case reports of um, aspergillus within the guttural pouch or in the upper respiratory tract that has responded simply from lavage with enylconazole. So I think they're a lot easier to treat when you have a very superficial lesion versus a very thick granulomatous lesion as you'd see with cryptococcus and, and canidia bolus basically fits somewhere in the middle of those. Okay. So, um, I suppose the important thing to remember is that aspergillus is not sensitive to fluconazole um, and even though fluconazole is the cheapest of the systemically available um, azole antifungal drugs it would not be an appropriate treatment for aspergillus. You'd be looking at, as I said, topical enylconazole or voriconazole or itraconazole and, and systemic itraconazole and voriconazole are probably 10 times the cost of fluconazole. Okay, yeah, that's an important consideration. With the cryptococcal infections that you mentioned, is there any kind of concern of zoonotic transmission? Um, I think the concern is always there. Um, there was a case in Australia that a pony had um, several cryptococcal granulomas within the lungs. Uh, the lab certainly handles the samples very carefully. There's no known, that I know of, um, nosocomial infection or zoonotic infections from horses to people, but, um, you know, horses are large animals and if they're ex Firing a large number of organisms, I think that's certainly possible. Um, one of the cases we took to surgery, you know, a large, I suppose even a half a bucket of um, cryptococcal granuloma was removed from that horse's head. Yeah. Um, just regular surgery masks um, and gloves and gowns were used. You know, we didn't go into the case um, with um, biohazard type masks or P2 masks or, or respirators or anything like that, um, I think it's probably more of a concern for the people in the laboratories that are actually growing up the, the funguses on the plates, but yeah. they certainly have the, the knowledge to carefully deal with such samples. Yeah. Great. Okay. So do you have any other comments on um, where the, the re further research is needed or where this... Uh, where we yeah. need to know more information about fungal infections in horses. Right. I think, as you alluded to, you know, when something's being published as a case report, um, often people don't bother, you know, there's no point reporting another three or four cases. I think it would be great to do a, 
you know, a, a nationwide retrospective study just so we can see the actual numbers of cases that are seen um, and, you know, gather some more data on their presented clinical signs, duration of clinical signs, the duration of therapy, um, response to surgery versus un, uh, medical antifungal therapy or combined therapy, um, the extent of the lesion versus the duration of treatment to try and get a little bit more information rather than just trying to glean information from, you know, a few case reports and, and anecdotal reports, you know, such as myself talking about the, you know, half a dozen cases or so that we've seen. So I think a retrospective study would be very useful. Um, also, if there's a variety of other antifungal drugs that are coming on the market for human medicine, um, before these are used in horses, they obviously have to come down in cost, but pharmacokinetic studies need to be done, and there's, those have been done for um, for fluconazole, viraconazole, um, and itraconazole. I think when people are dealing with a fungal infection, whether it's in an eye or in a uterus or um, upper respiratory tract, I think the two big things you've got to think about is, is the drug... What's the bioavailability of the drug? Is it is it well absorbed um, if given orally? And also um, the actual spectrum of activity. And as I said, fluconazole has very poor act activity against Aspergillus or Fusarium. And they're the most common things we see in fungal keratitis. Therefore, okay. it's yeah. probably a waste of time and money giving fungal keratitis cases fluconazole. Oroconazole mm. um, is a lot more appropriate Trying to do um, sensitivity for fungal infections is is quite difficult, and and I certainly aren't as accurate as um, they are with bacterial infections. But I think that's an area for for further research. Uh, you know what we can again glean from from human medicine. You know they've done a lot more cases than we have, and using that information and either extrapolating it or repeating studies in horses would be be really useful. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stewart. It's been fascinating talking to you. No, thank you, Claire. And I think probably the other thing that we don't often think about is um, third world or even second world countries where the diagnostics aren't available. Um, a lot of these regions are tropical and, and there's probably a huge number of cases in South America, um, Asia that are undiagnosed and untreated and and probably without knowledge from the western world we're probably able to help a lot of these individuals um, but often they they don't even have the lab support to get a diagnosis let alone to be able to afford the treatments but i think that would be probably a source of a large number of cases to actually do some clinical trials on i would expect there would be large numbers of cases there anyway yeah. okay well Fabulous. Thank you very much for um, joining the EVE podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVE.